Our sermon passage today brings us back to our sermon series, True and Better, the Gospel of John. We'll be picking up where we left off a few weeks ago um, before Palm Sunday. At the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 2, carrying over into chapter 3. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Now, while he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus, at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a good teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you speak? How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has came who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it we see a picture of who you are and what you're about, and thus a picture of who we are and what we are to be about. I pray in these moments that your Holy Spirit would move upon our hearts, that we would see the beauty and majesty of Jesus, and our hearts would love him all the more, that we might be uh, compelled by faith to cling to him and his promises, and that we might be conformed to his image by your grace. I pray, I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. After I graduated from college years ago, I needed a job, and my prospects were pretty small. At the time, I was in a band, and I was convinced that I was about to take the world over with my fantastic songwriting. We were going to uh, conquer the airwaves, and but I, you know, we just needed to be heard by the right person. And I, you know, dressed like I was in a band, I had long hair like I was in a band, but that didn't pay the bills. So I needed a job. And one day I went into the bank, local bank, and uh, just to do a transaction. And the bank manager, the branch manager there, was the uh, the dad of one of my childhood best friends. So I popped into his office to say hello, and we were talking for a little while. And he said, "Tim, do you you still need a job?" I said, "Yeah." He said, well, cut your hair, and I'll get you a job. I had no <laughs> no uh, background in banking at the time, but he said, you know, cut your hair, and I'll get you a job. And so that's what I did. I got a haircut, and I still had to apply online through their, you know, application portal. But he told me to let him know when I did that, and he'd go in, and he'd find me, and he'd send my application to the right people, and that's what he did. And a few weeks later, ta-da, haircut new job. It all happened because I saw my dad, my uh, friend's dad. It was all because I knew somebody 
who could make it happen for me. You know, that's not uncommon, right? It happens a lot in our world. A lot of times it's who you know. Your contacts open up doors for for you, doors of opportunities. And people do you favors. And this isn't all bad. It's a good thing when people look out for, for one another. It's a good thing when friends connect friends to jobs or to opportunities. That's great. But a lot of times in our world, our broken world, this kind of thing, this kind of it's who you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know, it can oftentimes lead to some fishy stuff, right? On the one hand, people get excluded. If you don't have the right contacts, if you're in a minority community, you're on the fringes and you don't know people at the top, this dynamic of connections can sometimes be a thing that bars you from opportunities, can keep you out. It excludes. Um, and, and skilled and talented people get left out. Or on the other hand, it gets abused, right? A powerful person holds the key to the door to the next step of opportunity and they can, what, often take advantage of those who want to get to the next step. So they'll accept bribes or they'll uh, manipulate or they'll make people do stuff for them. And after all, that's how things work, right? Some people can make or break people. Some people are king makers, as it's called, or, or gatekeepers. And you better not get on their bad side. Better keep them happy. You know, this dynamic is nothing new. This dynamic of powerful people kind of being the gatekeepers that can open the doors to opportunity. This is nothing new. It's something that's existed for a very long time across cultures and across all of human history. And it's something that we actually see at our pa in our passage this morning. Um, in our passage, an incredibly powerful and influential, influential man comes to speak with Jesus. Now, Jesus has newly arrived on the scene. He's made quite a splash in his debut as a, a public rabbi or a public teacher. And this powerful man of connections and positions who can make stuff happen arrives and seems to crack the door open, the door of opportunity for Jesus. But one of the things that we learn in this passage is that God will have none of it. Jesus will have none of this. In Jesus, God has come into our world, light into darkness, as it's spoken about in John chapter 1. And he's not come here to work his way up the ranks, to climb ladders of success. He's not come to rub shoulders with the important and right people. Jesus has come on a rescue mission. Jesus has come on a rescue mission, in part to free us from this corrupt and broken world of building our lives on our status or building our lives on the back of who we know and what we can do for folks. Jesus has come in part to free us for this. So in this passage, Jesus opts out. He's come not to make a way for us to have our best life now, but he's come so that we can be born again. We can be made new, born again into a family that doesn't need ladder climbing the ladder climbing in this world to find its worth. Born into a family whose worth is founded on the unending sufficiency of who God is. And in our passage, we see Jesus staring what we would call opportunity directly in the face and opting out. But the good news is, is he opts out and cracks the door open as he opts out. Staring at the face of opportunity, he opts out, but he cracks the door open with an invitation to Nicodemus here and an invitation to us as well. So let's jump into our passage. Let's catch us up to speed what's already happened. 
Jesus has just arrived on the scene, and as I said, he's made quite a splash. We've met Jesus in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, where he's identified by John the Baptist as kind of his successor. Not just his successor, John the Baptist identifies Jesus Christ as the one that, that John the Baptist has been anticipating. Now, he's told all the people that God's about to do something incredible. God's about to arrive, and the Lamb of God will take away the sin of the world. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as that person, and a few of John the Baptist's disciples begin to follow Jesus. And what happens in chapter 2? Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at Passover, and what does he do? He goes straight to the temple, and he stops the temple, normal temple activities from happening. Why? Because they had grown corrupt. And Jesus stands in the middle of the temple and essentially says, this has to end. This corruption has to end. This corruption of uh, selling uh, animals for sacrifice at marked up prices, of exchanging money at marked up rates, taking advantage of people who are coming to worship God, this has to end. And obviously, something that dramatic, somebody walking into the middle of the temple and halting the entire activity, it's caught the attention of some folks. It's caught the attention of some people. And Jesus, for the first time, has come to the attention of the very important people there in Jerusalem. The leaders uh, represented here by the man Nicodemus. And chapter 2 ends with the first few verses of our passage. Jesus has begun for the first time, as I've said, to win some public acclaim. And people are rallying to him. It even says they believed in his name. And the text says something very interesting to get us ready to meet Nicodemus at the beginning of chapter 3. Look at twenty uh, verse 24. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, John, the writer of this gospel, is telling us, before he introduces us to Nicodemus, a basic thing about Jesus and his interactions with people. Jesus is not fooled by outward appearances. Jesus is not fooled by the false dynamics that we work that we set up in this world to give us worth the false uh, dynamics that we set up to give us our identity Jesus in his interactions with people cuts to the heart of the matter because he knows what's in each person and that's a great introduction to who we meet in verse 1 Nicodemus Nicodemus now Nicodemus was an incredibly important man Verse 1 tells us two things about him. The first one is that he was a Pharisee, and the second one is that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. We're supposed to hear this, Pharisee, Jewish ruling council, as Nicodemus was an incredibly powerful and important man, a gatekeeper to opportunity, we, we could say. First, Pharisee. What does that mean? What were the Pharisees? Now, you've probably heard the term before. If you've ever read anything about Jesus, he interacts a lot with people called Pharisees. Um, and it's kind of hard for us to describe who the Pharisees were in modern terms. On the one hand, they were kind of like a religious denomination. So we say Baptist or Presbyterian or Pentecostal. Um, the Pharisees were kind of like a subset of the Jewish people, um, religious group, you know. But on the other hand, they were kind of like a political party. They tended to be very... Uh, they were populist and conservative in a sense. Um, but at the same time, the Pharisees were kind of like a professional membership union. 
or maybe something like the American Medical Association or the National Association of Social Workers. Because you couldn't just say, well, I'm a Pharisee because I agree with the Pharisees. No, you had to actually, to become a recognized Pharisee, you had to meet certain educational standards. You had to be mentored and go through processes to join. And at the time of Jesus, for instance, the Pharisees who were incredibly popular, they only numbered a few thousand, and they only ever did number a few thousand people. So what we have here is a pretty exclusive group of people who had a big influence. That's who the Pharisees were. But Nicodemus isn't just a Pharisee. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, this ruling council was called the Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin, um, and this group was even more restricted and even more important. It was kind of like a mixture of uh, the, the United States Senate and the Supreme Court. There were 71 elders that made up the Sanhedrin who decided all kinds of religious and political and legal issues. So this is who Nicodemus is. He's a Pharisee, so one of a few thousand Incredibly important. He's worked himself up in the ranks to the point that he is a member of the Sanhedrin, this 71-member group of elders who are kind of the final authority on all important things of Jewish life at the time. As I said, incredibly powerful and important. And what happens here is that Nicodemus comes to meet Jesus. And he, of all people, has the ability to open doors to Jesus that no one else really does. He's a gatekeeper. Jesus has already started making waves, and he, but he's you know outside the authority of the Sanhedrin. He marched into the middle of the temple. Maybe Nicodemus saw an opportunity. Well, this is a new leader. I can, I can groom this young guy. I can groom him into a powerful, good leader. Whatever it was, we see here in verse 2, notice that Nicodemus arrives to speak with Jesus at night at night. Now, uh, John didn't just put this in the gospel on accident. In the gospel of John, we see a lot about the concepts of light and darkness, starting from the first chapter. Remember, it says that Jesus was the light of God coming into darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, did not overcome it or understand the light that was Jesus coming into the world. Now, in a sense, here in chapter 3, this conversation with Nicodemus and Nicodemus's utter confusion at speaking to Jesus is a um, unpacking of that idea that the light has come into the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it, has not comprehended it. It's an unpacking here in this conversation that takes place when? At night, in darkness. And just to make the point of what's going on here, this isn't our darkness. Now, we say darkness and we think it's dark outside, but we've got electricity. We can turn lights on. At this time, when it was dark outside, it was dark. Yeah, they had torches. They had lamps. They could light oil lamps and maybe campfires if they were in the right place. But Nicodemus arrives here at the cover of a very dark night because it seems that that may be when he's most comfortable you know, coming to Jesus. Maybe he's trying to hide. He doesn't want people to see him, this very important man, coming to see this lowly new upstart Jesus. And he begins here in, with flattery. Look back at chapter 2, what Jesus or what Nicodemus says to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. What we see here is Nicodemus sees this new upstart Jesus as a potentially important person that he can groom. 
in, in this sense, Nicodemus is almost like a recruiter showing up to a basketball tournament. He can connect this new, uh, maybe raw talent in this basketball player with the right coaches. He can make it happen, maybe make some money, exchange hands. But either way, he finds this guy before anybody else does. And he can set him up and kind of ride his coattails in a sense. And Nicodemus comes here to talk terms with Jesus. He, he flatters him here because it appears that Nicodemus is here to make a plan. And this is how things are done with important people, right? Important men especially. To get to the next level, you have to do this thing. You have to kiss the ring. You have to follow the steps. You have to get into the inner circle of power and you have to climb the ladder. But as Nicodemus begins this conversation with a man, Jesus, who was much lower than him on the totem pole of, uh, social, of the social ladder, Jesus responds to Nicodemus in a way he'd probably never heard before. Probably been a long time since Nicodemus had been challenged by anybody. In fact, if we're reading through here, maybe you felt it a minute ago, it almost seems at first that Jesus and Nicodemus are having two entirely different conversations. <laughs> Because Nicodemus begins with his flattery, and Jesus doesn't respond, well, it's an honor to meet you. He says this in verse 3, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And this response is jarring. This response is jarring. And Nicodemus plainly didn't expect such a response. He had just said, essentially, Jesus, we've se- I've seen you, and plainly, you're, f- you're important from God. You're from God. You have to be. I've seen you. And Jesus says, you can't even begin to see what's going on. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus responds with, essentially, what are you talking about? Born again? Born again? How can a grown man, mature, established, go back to being a baby? Now, here, Nicodemus isn't just shocked at how ridiculous this sounds in a physical sense. He points this out, but I don't think Nicodemus literally thinks Jesus is saying he has to be physically born again. Nicodemus was an intelligent man with a level of expertise in the Old Testament scriptures. He surely understood uh, when somebody was using a metaphor. I think Nicodemus here is shocked, not because he thinks Jesus literally means... um, be physically born again. I think Nicodemus is shocked because of this. He's a man who has done much with his life. He's he's an incredibly important man who's made the most out of his opportunities. And the idea that he has to be born again, that Nicodemus has to be born again, that he has to start over, that to see the kingdom of God, he can't get there from here. The idea that he has to be born again was offensive. After all, he was important with far too much to have to give up, far too much to lose the idea that he had to be born again. Because the Pharisees, one thing that they prided themselves on as a group is that they worked for what they got, that they earned it, that they merited it. They were a group, they didn't pass down authority from father to to son, father to son. You didn't inherit a place with the Pharisees. No, they prized learning. They prized not uh, not uh, class as far as where you were born into, but they 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 prized uh, the idea that they honored 
and promoted the people who were most worthy. And so Nicodemus was a man of great power, which we've already said, but he wasn't someone who it had just been handed to. He had worked really hard to get to where he was. But Jesus essentially says here, Nicodemus, you cannot work your way to God. You cannot status your way to God. The power and the wealth and the things that you feel like you've earned is not an economy that God trades in. God is doing something fundamentally different in his kingdom. And Jesus telling Nicodemus to be born again is Jesus saying this, you're invited to found your life on something much bigger and stronger than your accomplishments and status, but you have to receive it with open hands. You can't cling on to what you hold. Uh, you can't cling on to your status to, to build your identity upon because it crowds out the grace of God. You must be born again. And Nicodemus, who's done much with his life, who has not wasted his time and energy, but has risen to great heights, he cannot believe that Jesus is telling him that that's not enough. He cannot believe that Jesus is saying you must be born again. That you can't work your status, your way to God and what he's doing. Jesus expands that in verse 5. Look what Jesus says. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Now, this points back to something that Nicodemus would have known very well. He was, as Jesus says in verse 10, Israel's teacher. And the Pharisees were a group who really knew their scriptures well. They didn't just read them, they memorized them. So when Jesus says here that you need to be born of water and the Spirit, he's pointing back to a prophet named Ezekiel. Now, this is actually the passage that we read as our uh, assurance of pardon just a few moments ago during our time of confession of sin. 600 years before the time of Jesus, a prophet named Ezekiel declared that a new beginning was coming, that God was going to do something um, that marked a new beginning. He said this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean water. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus is saying here, when he says that you must be born of water and spirit, that he has arrived to do what Ezekiel promised 600 years ago, to give people a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, to cleanse them, to wash them, to make them new. Nicodemus wants to interact with Jesus here like Jesus is simply another potential up-and-coming teacher or leader, but Jesus tells Nicodemus here that in him God is coming through on his promises, that something true and better is arrived in Jesus, that Jesus is here not just to lead, but he is here to cleanse and to renew, that he is here as the king of God's kingdom, the true king, to bring the explosion of God's grace into the world that God had promised. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The way to receive this incredible grace is not to elbow your way to the front of the line with your impressive credentials. The way to receive it is to receive it like a child with open hands. The way to receive it is to be carried <laughs> to Jesus like a baby and to receive with nothing in your hands to bring all that God has for you, you must be born again. This is a grace that's utterly out of place in our world. 
that's full of gracelessness. Our world is full of selfishness and sin. And the renewing power of God's Holy Spirit is like a wind blowing into our world. And we can't account for it. We can try to figure out some equation to explain it. But the way to receive it is to be baffled by it, to revel in that grace. It's baffling. Sometimes it's confusing, but it's all gift. And we can revel in it. We can delight in it. We can rejoice in it. We can receive it with open hands. We can let go of the things that we cling to to find identity and security. And we can receive all we need from Him as a gift. As I've said before, we either come to Jesus to receive God's grace like children, or we don't come at all. We either come like children or we don't come at all. In our world, even here today in 2021 in Dunn, North Carolina, we are going to be tempted at every turn to treat people like they're worthy only if they can do something for us. We're going to be tempted to treat other people or ourselves like we only really matter if we can measure up to some kind of idea. If we work our way to the front of the line or the top of the pile, If we really have earned it, then we can hang our hat on that at the end of the day. We can rest our head in peace knowing that we have earned what we have. But that never lasts. And what happens for us here today, this morning, is that this invitation that was given to Nicodemus in the middle of the night is an invitation given to us right now in the broad daylight. Jesus invites us to opt out on that way of measuring what matters. Because God is not fooled by our image crafting. God is not impressed by our prestige. God is not impressed by what kind of car we drive or how big our house is or how great our bank account looks. And this, friends, is very good news. It's very good news for us. It's good news for us who don't have a great last name or a great family history or political power to throw around because it means we don't have to go find those things to be received and accepted home by God, to be received as a daughter or son of God. But it's also, hear this, it's also good news for those of us who do have status and prestige because maybe you have done impressive things with your life. Maybe you have made good grades. Maybe you have a trophy case full of all the victories you had in sports or whatever it may be. Maybe you do have a lot of money in the bank. Maybe you drive around and you feel like you're a person of reputation who should be respected. But that status, that prestige, all that supposed wealth, that way of thinking about the world, it truthfully slowly chokes life and love out of our hearts. And it will leave us, um, it will leave us empty. It cannot satisfy our hearts. Because we weren't created for those things. We were not created to find our identity in our wealth or the things that we've earned or the status that we've gained. The good news this morning is we don't have to be stuck in this. Whether we find ourselves at the top of the ladder or the bottom, we're invited into the kingdom of God, a kingdom that operates on fundamentally different ways of living and looking at the world. We're invited into the kingdom of God where worth is measured by God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And that's a grace that doesn't rot or fade or rust because it's not built on things that rot or fade or rust like the things of this world. It's not, uh, the grace of God is, is something not in danger of disappearing with a stock market crash. The grace of God is not something that rests on the fickleness of people's reputation that can be ruined by just a bit of gossip. 
The grace of God is a firm foundation for us to find our identity, find our rest. And like I said, we receive it like children, or we don't receive it at all. We come with open hands, ready to be filled by the grace of God. But we can only have those open hands if we let go of the things that we've been clinging to for our identity and our security. So if you're here this morning, if you're listening to this at whatever time it may be, and you are weighed down by the opinions of others about you, or you're weighed down about your own opinion of yourself, or if you're riding high because you do have the respect and admiration of others, the invitation to you this morning is to opt out on that way of measuring your worth and to throw yourself upon the sure grace of Jesus Christ. The invitation that Jesus gave to Nicodemus here all those years ago is an invitation to us as well to lay all those things aside, to toss them away and be born again. Be born anew. To come to Him like a baby. To be carried along by the grace of God with nothing with nothing but open hands in your need, friend. We must be born again. And to be born again is not just to have a feeling like we've had some big spiritual experience, though that may happen. It very well does for lots of people. To be born again means we stop running to other family identities, other last names to find our worth. That we have to stop answering to other last names. The idea is that we are in Jesus already, dearly loved daughters and sons of God. And Jesus secured this for us, removing everything that stood in the way of Him bringing us home. And now we have a home. Because what stood in the way? Our sins? Our sins? He took our place in punishment at the cross so that, that, that our sin can't even stand in the way of us coming home. And to be born again means we walk in that forgiveness and see God's love as His final word for us, not our sin. What else stood in the way? Death? Death, Jesus defeated the power of death in his resurrection so that even it cannot stand in the way of us receiving the life of God. To be born again means we walk in this newness of life, knowing that for us, physical death, as terrible as it may be, as much as we should still hate it, is not the domineering enemy that it was because it does not hold the fear that it may be the end for us. Again, the final word that God has for us is grace. What he has for us is eternal Life, life that cannot be defeated, even by physical death. What stood in the way of us receiving, being received home, this, the world of sin we find ourselves in? Well, Jesus judged that. He judged that at his cross. And he will set all things right when he comes again so that no false kingdom can, can make a claim on us. To be born again means we live first as members of God's kingdom, valuing what he values and loving what he loves, no matter what the kingdoms of this world might call us to chase after. Friends, this is what it means to be born again. We give up. We give up the false homes that we tend to try to build up, the false identities that we cling to, and we receive our identity from the God who has set his affection on us, who has set his love on us. And has promised, has promised to give us the grace that we need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this invitation, this open door that you gave to Nicodemus here in this passage recorded to us and this open door that you give to us today. And whether we've come to you by faith once or never before or a thousand times, I pray that you would work in our hearts to, to uh, turn our hearts away from the things we tend to cling to and to place our affections on you. 
Teach us to trust in you. Teach us to believe what you say in the gospel. Teach us to depend upon our identity as dearly loved daughters and sons of God who are justified in your sight and being set free from even the pull and power of sin. Do this work in our hearts, Lord, we pray for your glory and for our good. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.